very well, warm welcome to the uh, London School of Economics. Uh, my name is George Gaskell, I'm a pro-director here, and uh, it's a great pleasure to open our literary festival with this uh, Future of Teen Fiction event. Now this is the culmination of a creative writing competition for state schools in London, which the LSE supported last year and it's again being run this year with support from our annual fund and from the Royal Society of Literature. The theme of this year's competition, to tie in with the theme of the uh, festival itself, is Off the Edge, What's on the Other Side? And this is all about pushing the boundaries, exploring new territories and uh, new ideas. So before the presentations to our winning teen authors, let me introduce and welcome our distinguished panel. Firstly, uh, Rebecca Klee, who is an editor of Spinebreakers website, which is a, web a website for book-loving teenagers by book-loving uh, book teenagers. Then we have uh, Patrick Ness, award-winning author of The Knife and Never Letting Go, The Ask and the Answer, and the last book in the trilogy, Monsters of Men, which will be published later this year. Then there's Alex Scarrow, sometime rock guitarist, computer game designer, adult thriller writer, who is now writing uh, his first novel for young adults, Time Riders. And Mark Walden is the author of the Popular Hive series, a comedy thriller set in an elite school where children are trained to be supervillains. Is this the sort of role model? <laughs> anyway, all the authors are going to be signing their books after this event outside the theatre. But without further ado, let me introduce uh, Patrick Ness, who's going to lead a discussion, and we're hoping for a good deal of audience participation. Patrick, the floor is yours. Thank you. That's very kind. As uh uh, as you may have seen in your programs, this was uh, meant to be chaired by Peter Florence, who is the who was the, one of the founders of the Hay Festival, and probably a number of other glorious accomplishments that I'm unaware of. But he has uh, pulled out um, at the last minute, uh, which would have been fine, except he also pulled out last year at the last minute. Um, so last year he said he had to go to a funeral. Uh, this year he said he was ill. So who knows? It might be true. Uh, but we have uh, we so we're going to be chairman this a bit. I've agreed to open it, but we have had almost no time to prepare. So uh, so we need some goodwill, and there'll be lots of time for questions from the audience. What we're going to do is we're going to talk till discuss about um, until about five past six or so, and uh, with lots of questions from you. So uh, get thinking, and then there, uh, then I will announce the winners of the competition, of which there are a number of entrants here. I can see and. Uh, invite you up on stage, we'll give out your, your prizes and have a photographs, and then like uh, George said, there will be signing outside for books afterwards. So lots of time um, for lots of things. So, uh, the, our topic is uh, the future of teen fiction, and I was thinking, in the 25 minutes I had to prepare, that uh, this generation, this young generation of teenagers who read now, are the first generation on earth who do more of their reading on screen than they do on the page. And I thought that was an interesting way to go into the future of teen fiction. Is where do we think? Where do we think teen fiction is going because of things like the Kindle and iPhones and so on and so forth? And let's begin with that. Well, I think the biggest difference that's going to happen immediately for people with you know, the iPad and the Kindle is that reading in the bath is going to become a lot less popular. Um, but it's going to cost you 200 quid when you drop a book in the bath. That's probably going to change things ever so slightly. First person invented the waterproof ebook reader wouldn't be going to make a killing. Um, I don't know. I think for me, I don't, I, it's difficult for me to say because I'm firmly of the opinion that I would rather read a paper book, not out of any kind of um, nostalgia but because they are, to me, much more practical. Um, and they're much more portable, in a way, more portable. 
okay, I can't take my entire library with me anywhere, but very rarely do I ever need more than one book wherever I'm going anyway. So I don't, I'm not necessarily personally convinced, but that isn't to say that we aren't talking about a generation that will wholeheartedly embrace e-books. Um, I don't know, I, I, I think part of it is to do with the technology. They need to be made easier to use, um, more robust, um, so that you can just chuck one in your bag and go yeah, head out with it. Um, whether or not, I think there will, there, there is bound to eventually one day be a tipping point where we switch from where more digital copies of books are sold than traditional paper copies. But I think that's still quite a way away. I think um, even people who wholeheartedly embrace technology, there is still well, uh, there is there's still. A, a, we've had thousands of years of humans reading books or analogs of books. It's a very different, different, uh, difficult cultural thing for us to just shed. And I think that that will, it doesn't matter how old you are. I think that books are just part of our lives and be around for much longer than than people suspect. Um, with other in other areas where technology is taken over from a traditional medium, it's because the technology does a demonstrably better and um, more accessible job. For example, you know, uh, film became as successful as it did because it could be distributed more widely. Actors didn't have to tour around the country to theatres and so on. But there's no practical difference between a book and an e-reader in, 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 in its use and experience. And so, I don't think it will be as quick a conversion as some people would have us believe. Steve Jobs being the, the obvious example. But um, I, I think it's going to take considerably longer than people than the, the real proponents of it will have you believe. I think you might disagree, is that right? No, no, I think I'm very remarked there. But, uh, I also get a sense that the, the media journalists in general seem to have an agenda of supporting the new e-readers. They're all into it, they've all got one. You get the sense that they'd like us all to have one too, the joining party. Uh, I, do, I do get a sense that this is all sort of... It's, it's going to be a while again before we I also think there's perhaps a generational uh, difference that perhaps um, you know, your and my generation has had more fealty to paper and print, more loyalty to paper and print than a younger generation which has grown up with the visual display. And so it's much less convergent for them than it is for us. So there may well be some division that walks down across the generation and the gap between those who will embrace it more readily and those who won't. It's hard to say. I, I really don't feel that uh, I need to hit the panic button there to want it. Does anybody have an e-reader? Anybody have one yet? Do you like it? Okay, there you go. We're bringing endorsement. One person who doesn't use it. What about you, Rebecca? What do you think? Well, the thing okay, is... What do you, you're, you're six, so this is a rarity for a teen fiction book with an actual teenager on it. Mm. So this is it's more <laughs> rare than it should be. So we're very lucky. Mm. So uh, where do you do most of your reading? Well, definitely... Um, books I don't like the idea of ebooks at all it's not it doesn't feel right to me I think not even looking at teen fiction I think looking much younger one of the first things you learn to do is turn a page it's like one of those experiences it's sharing reading a book with your parents and you I think that's lost when you get to ebooks I know it's much more environmentally friendly and yes on holidays when our book, our car is full of books and more people um it's definitely more useful. But I think I don't want to be in a world where turning a page is obsolete. We don't use it anymore. It's, it's not one of those things you can just get rid of overnight, I think. I hope. There's a lot of people sure. who are big fans of, of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, they talk about the smell of the yes. book, like mm -hmm. the texture, one the weight of it. In the world. Yeah. Bear in mind, I, I have a vested interest in books sticking around a long time. Yeah. I've never bought an argument. <laughs> I've never had that sort of passion for the texture and feel inside the book. What I want is a delivery device that's the most efficient possible to deliver me the tail. And for that reason, I think the book is the best hardware platform. Because it doesn't have all the problems, as you said, dropping in the bath or getting sand behind the screen or jam on the keys or whatever. And I mean, I, I know as well from personal experience that I would be the person who desperately wants to read their book, pulls their e-reader out of the bag and it's got no charge. Same as my mobile, 90% of the time, when I need to use it, it's got no charge. So it, it, that would be incredibly frustrating. You know, the traditional book is never going to just go dead on and be unusable, um, which is another... Although I did but, say... But then again, but then again, I mean, a CD, 
your you know, CD is never going to have a hard drive failure and you've lost all your music. That hasn't stopped music from being almost entirely downloadable. Yeah, I think that I, I, I've said for music, I don't think there's any. There's, most people, for music, there's no discernible difference in actually experiencing it. You've still got a pair of earphones in or listen to open speakers, regardless of the machines playing it back. I think with an ebook, because you've actually got. You've lost the physical act of sitting flipping pages. And I think that's quite fundamental to a lot of people. Although I do, I definitely mentioned while we're talking about that, I saw a fabulous, um, there's, a, there's a little comic strip online, which I don't know if anyone has ever seen, it's called um, XKCD. It's fabulous, hilarious. And um, they had a comic strip of a guy using his Kindle, he was on holiday. And because as you know, the Kindle can pop up to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And so he says, oh, I mean, I'm in Vienna, let's see where the, the good restaurants are in Vienna. And so he starts looking, he's up in his Kindle, and he just stops for me. Hold on a second. He scratches the Kindle logo off the top of the Kindle underneath and says, Hitchhiker's Guide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Half the audience over a certain age understood. I mean, I think that there might be a transition. I think that there might be... Um, I mean, I do think people are... Young people are used to more used to reading on screens than I ever was. I, again, I, I do like the actual physical fact of a book, if you know what I mean, holding it in your hand and it's sort of a private thing. Um, but for example, um, in my books, there is a lot of changes of thought. Uh, you know, it's, it does different things. There's a, in the books, there's a phenomenon called the noise, and it's a different fonts for different people. And we, when we went to make an ebook, the problem was that the ebook platform could only handle one font at a time. Which is ridiculous. That's a ridiculous thing, and it's such. And it's um, and I think that I mean obviously it's an easily fixable technological problem. But I think it's uh, for me. I thought it was a problem in the actual philosophy behind an ebook, in that it is only a a page stuck on a screen. And I think I was talking to one of the designers at my publisher about that. There is, you know, that there will eventually at some point become an, a, a a way of writing books four ebooks so that they do more than just sit on the page and maybe like the colours with this movement and that might be gadgetry for now, mm-hmm. but I think that there's something to be said about writing for a platform instead of just a book. Yeah, like and, and it might just be me, it's quite a simple thing, but I, I find it more difficult to read on a screen actually. It hurts your eyes so after a while. I can read a book for five hours on end or something like that, but the screen I can only stay focused on for about half an hour, it's just the light and stuff. I don't think it's I and, I, and, and as I mean, obviously, I'm going to sound slightly cynical about it at the moment, but yeah. and that's coming from the position of a complete technophile. Mm-hmm. Now, I love technology; I yep. embrace it in every other area. It's just something that it's something that really leaves me quite cold. I feel no need for it at the moment at all. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose there's, there's, uh, the market seems to want this to happen. The market is really books up, but every publisher is bracing a breakneck speed towards the digital future. You, you can't help thinking, yeah, stop. Look at the record industry. Just, just take a breath a moment. Do we really want to race this fast towards an entirely digital world by books? Do you think there's any threat to long form fiction? Do you think there's any threat to? Well, I, I can't help feeling if the business wants it to happen, uh, for books to become digital and for the, the hardware platform to be an, an iPad or a Kindle, then yeah, because the way we consume text and screen is different, as you say, you can only do it in short bursts, or if you're using the iPad. There are so many cool things you could be doing with your iPad that uh, your tolerance for boring paragraph mm. is going to drop. So, you know, you, you may well find that fiction will have to mutate to reflect the new platforms. So instead of being an you know, 80,000 word product, a book, a story, it's a much shorter thing, or the chapters are much shorter, or they all have to be hyperlinked to something interesting and more. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I think in a funny kind of way it could lead us back to a form of literature that we abandoned long ago, which is kind of episodic yeah. writing, um, and I think that that could become a lot more popular, because short bursts, keeping um, people interested, and, and uh, my, uh, yeah, the whole idea of micropayments, so you don't pay you know, six, seven quid for a book, you pay 50p for this chapter, and if you don't like it, you don't buy, don't buy anymore, but then next month there'll be another chapter, and then another chapter, another chapter. Um, it's just a different way of, of consuming it, but this, that, that's something from, you know, obviously... Victorian era, which was coming back possibly. And that didn't turn out too badly. No, worked for him. Then again, cinema didn't, didn't kill books, and television didn't kill books, and home computer in 30 years of trying hasn't killed books. Well, there's, a, there's, so. there's, I think, there's an old saying which I think is absolutely true that no 
uh, art form has ever replaced another art form in history. And I don't think that there's any chance that, um, I think, both myself and Alex probably have had this experience of being told that if you go through to work in the, the video games industry that we were responsible for the downfall of Western <laughs> civilization because we, you know, it was, um, was going to replace, stop kids reading, it was going to replace books. Like, Sorry, I just don't buy that. No form of art, and I, have, and I use that word guardedly in the first video game, um, has ever replaced another, and I don't see that that's going to start happening just because you know, something new has come along. Well, that's all the material we've got. <laughs> are, there, are there any questions? Somebody else always has to ask the first, and then that's one. we got a mic if you want. Or if you can shout. Breakers is that it's extra to the books. It's a way of exploring the books beyond the last page, which also, the whole name of Spinebreakers is completely pointless if there are no books, no <laughs> spines to break. Um, but, and so I think, I think sites like Spinebreakers and stuff are allowed to exist because it's the cyber world to do with books away from the actual page itself. And when you're online to read a book instead of to talk about it or something, I think actually it means that um, the extra exploration into novels might actually disappear as well. Who's heard of, who's heard of Spinebreakers? Yeah, tell us a bit about it. Um, oh, okay. Well, Spinebreakers is um, it's run by teenagers. There's, about, there's deputy editors across the UK um, who contribute content to the site, and I'm one of um, uh, about 15 main editors in London who go to meetings every month. And what Spinebreakers is, is it's a site um, where you can contribute content about any book you've just read um, of any media form, uh, alternative covers or reviews or um, character profiles. And we also have a forum where we discuss topics to do with literature and have polls, and we can post questions to authors when interviews are going on, and we post events around the country as well. And it's a, a way of connecting book lovers around the UK, and it's... Um, yeah, like I said, it's um, a way of making a good book last a little longer. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay, Any other questions? Mm -hmm. I think that with ebooks, there may be a great sort of thing, but it's like some things they need to, you need to keep their, cl their how classic they are. You need a piece of paper in front of you to read it, not just hold your phone in front of you. Because when you tell your friends, Oh, it's a book. They say, "Oh, it's your e-book." But when you have a book in front of you, you're like, "Oh, it's that book. Yeah, I know it." Mm -hmm. So, do you agree? Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. So, so in the, in the playground, um, e-books are considered to be quite naff, and, and normal books cooler. Not, not really, because it's like it's a piece of computer in front of you. Sorry. It's a piece of computer in front of you. You could also become lazy. So I think normal books are better. Yeah. I would also I would also eliminate one of the thing the things that I think we've all probably done sitting on the tube trying to work out what the person opposite you is reading. <laughs> that would be extremely <laughs> difficult if they're just sat with their Kindle like that. Should we take one more and we'll go on a bit? I think one of the reasons that ebooks are so popular is because um, it's another way to get children to start to read. Because it's on a screen, people are going to be more likely to want to read. And um, parents might say that you could read something on the computer instead of in, with a page and paper. Do you agree? Do you? Because I think this is an issue. Because I mean, there's a lot when ebooks are talked about, particularly since this is future of teen fiction. There's a lot of talk um, in our publishing about how we need to like make it electronic to get the teenagers, to keep the teenagers reading. Do you think that's true? Or do you think that's just something desperately not worth wanting to miss the market? I mean, do you, I mean, because I mean, uh, how many of you have read Twilight? 
How many have read Twilight as an actual book? Yeah, it sells in its thousands and thousands and thousands, regardless of the, of the platforms available. Do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I like to think that that's not true, because I think, I, I'm sure most babies aren't born with, you know, a dislike for reading or something. And I think if you can recapture the love you might have had as a younger child, maybe you moved away to cooler things or something like that, then the book is what's going to do that, not this strange thing on uh, your iPhone or whatever. And so, like I said, I, I think... I think maybe that's underestimating teenagers because I think we all know what a book is. I mean, we, it's, it's, it's not about the thing itself. It's more about the fact that you're sitting down reading. That's not the thing you want to be doing. You might be more out playing with your friends or playing video games or whatever. And so I think it's getting over that mentality and not, it's not about the media in which the book's presented to you. Exactly. I, I completely agree. It's, um it's about what the book is itself, not how it's yep. presented. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, part of the re part of the thinking behind when I was at Hive was to get create something that, when I was the age of the books I aimed at, which is sort of slightly younger than a teenager, um, it was the book I wanted to read. Um, and it's about what I call the, the, the thin end of the wedge, if you can get... It's more about reluctant readers. It's, you don't have to convert people who are actually passionate and uh, active readers. But say somebody who has just come from playing Halo 3, they want to read something which has got some elements of that in it. And then they may well go on to read something more um, worthy. But if you give a reluctant uh, teenage boy uh, a reluctant reader a copy of Wuthering Heights and say, go away and read that, it's fabulous. They'll get three pages in and go back to the joypad. So any boys here have read Wuthering Heights? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good for you. So I just think that it's, and that's always been, that's, that's a, uh, has always been a problem. Will, I think, will always be a problem. And I don't necessarily think that if you gave a boy Wuthering Heights on a Kindle, so of a copy of the book, it would make any difference at all. Even if it glowed and so like, yeah, yeah. I, I agree, yeah. yeah. Unless there was maybe some kind of beat em up built into it. So <laughs> if you get sufficiently annoyed with the characters, you can beat them up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That might work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially modern times, there's so much violence. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, I mean, it's funny when you talk about it, I mean, you've got Pride and Prejudice and Zombies now, and <laughs> people are so kind of starting to tap back into the fact that, you know, people want. There is, uh, I, I don't know, I think there is a. A slight rebellion against being told you should read this. People want to find for themselves what they want to read. And I think it would be very harmful to say to people, we shouldn't be reading that, we should be reading this. I mean, that goes back to the old thing that it doesn't matter what you read as long as you read. Yeah. Um, and I, would, I, mean, I don't know, I mean, speaking personally, because of using the internet, I probably read more on a daily basis than I did before the internet came along. Because that's how you experience the internet. The vast majority of it, anyway, you have to read it. You can't you just sit and passively experience it. Um, except for like YouTube, obviously. Um, and I think that that's, you know, we perhaps underestimate how much things might have improved because of how much you have to read on the internet. Also, how, how much you have to actually write, put your own thoughts, express your own thoughts on the internet. You actually have to write. And, it's, and I think we perhaps underestimate how the effect that that could have in the, in the longer term. When I talk to schools, I talk about that. I talk about that uh, you're, you're probably right more than, than my generation ever did. And uh, um, also about when I, when I was a teenager, and uh, this is uh, just a hint to all your teenagers here, when I was a teenager, I read just fantastically inappropriately. I read stuff I so totally should not have read. And uh, those of you of a certain age will, I mean, I read a Harold Robbins when I was about 13. And I was very educational. <laughs> and, uh, but I mean, I say, when I, I say when I talk to teenagers, yeah, yeah, yes, read the classics, read what you need to read for school, read contemporary fiction, read all of us, for example. <laughs> uh, but also read crap. You know, read, read rubbish and read Hello Magazine, whatever you look and see. But you know, read, uh, because otherwise, how are you going to find out who you are and uh, what you like? And if particularly, I mean, does anybody here want to be a writer? Does anybody here want to? Because a lot of you, yes, a lot of you entered this competition. Um, a lot of the interests were very, very good. So, I mean, if you want to be a writer, the way that I really found out that I wanted to be a writer was by being a good reader. Where I would read something and I would say, well, I do that better. I do that differently. And that for me was where it really started. It's Stephen King's number one piece of advice, isn't it? Yeah. Good writer, read a lot. 
Actually, another question. Uh, you hear the question from before, and then you. I think. Well, I think you're right about the stuff like ebooks can never replace books because all the stuff that a book symbolizes, like the turning of the page and stuff. And I think nobody really wants to be reading a good book and then like a pop up advert. <laughs> Just, boom! Visit this website or something. Because no one's never. And like, if you drop a book, it's not gonna explode. <laughs> it's just gonna get a bit of mud on the page. But if you drop an ebook, you're gonna have lost money and it will have exploded by that time. <laughs> <laughs> Generally speaking, exploding books are a thing to avoid. Um, yeah, and all, and all hard drives eventually fail. You know, yeah. All hard drives eventually I mean, I, but I really, I really, really like both what um, Rebecca said and what Mark said, which is the. What you said about when you learn to read, you learn to read with your parents, and you learn to read a picture book. And so far, there is no good platform for picture books, uh, electronic platform for picture books. You, know, you turn the page with your parents, and I think the act of turning the page yeah. is a really important one. But I also agree about what Mark said about no art form ever placing another art form. I, th I think that there will be books, and I think there will also be ebooks, and maybe there'll be. Maybe ebooks will be deluxe editions or something. Maybe they'll maybe they'll do something else in addition to maybe be like bonus tracks or something like that. I mean, I, I think that I think they can happily coexist. I think, and also I think to a certain extent it could be that we're it's a, it's a slightly um, moot point. Mm. You know, maybe ebooks will replace paper books, but in but the same way as really paper do. books replace wax tablets. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and so ultimately the medium perhaps doesn't matter as long as people are continuing to read. It doesn't really matter how that how they read because you know. An album on an iPod is no, just no different to an album off a CD player on an iPhone from ten years ago. But the experience, the experience is exactly the same for the end user, and it's exactly I'm thinking ebooks are the same. And so, I think to be, to be honest, the thing I find quite surprising about ebooks and the words you say about people pushing them quite hard and them wanting to be adopted is I find that quite strange on the part of the publishers, because ultimately what that Allows at the end of that road, and closely as representatives of our various publishers who are here, is the death of the publisher. Because an author, what's to stop an author selling directly to his audience once you've completely abandoned the problem of printing books, shipping them to stores, having them publicised via you know, traditional media? If it's, you know, if you look at, say, the example I said, people look at uh, when Radiohead released their album for free and said, pay what you want. And they made more money than they've ever made from any album that they've ever sold traditionally to a music publisher. And you have to start asking yourself as an author, well, this could actually be a positive thing. Because if I make more than 10% of the cover price of the book... You make 10%? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> tradition, traditionally, 10% um, of the cover price of the book, um, I'm, I'm making a profit. So if I, if I sold one of my books at a pound, I'd be making more money directly to the... To the, to the reader, I'd be making more money than I do at the moment. So, so you still would have to get as big as Radiohead first. Yes. <laughs> but there is a thing on the internet that I talk about um, 10,000 true fans. The contention is if you have 10,000 fans of anything, whether it's a book or an author or a musician or an artist or whatever, then you can make a living without having to involve the traditional distributors, distributors and publishers of, of what you might do. And it's quite a compelling idea. My no, just, I think that's why I find it quite strange that there is this hurdling towards this, let's do ebooks, let's do ebooks, let's do ebooks. It's like, well, actually, once you cut out, once we have the internet to distribute these things, well, it becomes a nonsense in a way, perhaps, to do it the traditional way. I don't know. I think we'll see. I think we'll settle it. Is anybody going to buy an iPad? Another resounding success for Because isn't it just a bigger, heavier iPhone that doesn't make calls? Isn't that essentially what it is? Yeah. There was a fellow you had a call. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, probably for me, um, it would have to be the front cover and the blurb that really um, drives me to um, want to read the books. Because when you're in a library, a good cover and a good blurb will drag you in. Whereas with um, an ebook, what you'll just get is an advertisement saying, you know, blah, 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 buy, blah, 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 cost, blah, blah, blah. So it's not very advertising. And at the same time, I mean, the um, thing with a book is that it's a gift, whereas an e-book is something that's costly and usually the price is going to drive someone away. So I'm just wondering what your opinion is on that. I think there are, there are sinister things about e-books. There are things which are quite... Um, 
there was a, there was an example there was an example there towards the end of last year when um, Amazon had to recall all the copies of 1984 of people's Kindles because they there was a confusion over the rights. Um, and there was a case of a guy who had basically annotated his entire copy of 1984 in his Kindle for his um, academic research and then woke up one morning and turned his Kindle on and it wasn't there anymore because Amazon had just pulled him back and they can do that and I find any, you know, the idea of a bookseller coming around to your house kicking the front door in and taking the book out of your hand <laughs> is, is hard, to, hard to imagine I mean I know, I know a few booksellers I can't see them doing that so. um, but with an e-book reader you can do that and you can do it with a personal button and none of us have any control over that um, which is slightly something we need to be quite cautious about I mean, I'm not, don't be too sort of paranoid about it, but if you, you know, once you have a, me, a media, if, if everybody's reading their books via ebook, and suddenly your government, for whatever reason, decide they sh- you shouldn't be reading this, and they can recall them across the entire country like that, and no one can read it anymore. And that's slightly sinister, and that's something we need to be able to exert a lot more control over before we all happily embrace this new way of... I also think this goes back to the idea of, uh, of a book as an object, a book as a thing to be read. Because, I mean, my, for me, covers and things like that are really, really important, and uh, my publishers are just right there. But, uh, I mean, the hardcover, the hardcover um, versions of my books, um, we, we talked about it for ages, because I really wanted them to be really, really cool. And they are really, really cool. Not, I can say that because it was nothing to do with me. I didn't design them, somebody else did. But uh, I just, the idea that it had an acetate cover and it was sort of clear with great colours and great design and all that stuff and um, I completely agree about the idea of that you see that and grabbing that as, as a physical object to hold and to have and to own uh, I completely agree that that's something something you don't get on an e-book having said that um, this is my iPod you know I, I have uh, the last thing I the last thing I bought was uh, the new Hot Chip album actually and I downloaded it and I don't have a physical copy so I wonder if there is a crossing Exactly. I mean, 20 years ago, people yeah. have been saying the same thing about album covers. Yeah. You know, yeah. I won't buy an album if I'm not drawn by the cover, yeah. but now they are effectively irrelevant mm-hmm. to a lot of people, so it can, it can change. Question at the back. You talk very interestingly about the medium, about the form in which uh, teen fiction might appear in the future, but I'm interested in what you think about the future of the content of teen fiction. Oh, on your notes. Do you think that, that uh, I mean, teen fiction is already uh, quite a new concept. You know, we had children's books and we had adult books, and over the lo- since my childhood, really, we've had a kind of golden age of teen fiction uh, crossover books. Uh, what sort of trends do you see in teenage fiction now? Well, I mean, I, uh, of the three of us, um, I'm probably the one who gets the most flack for my content. Um, and wrongly, so you know, bring it on. I'm happy to defend myself. Um, but um, we were talking this up, about this just a, bit, a, a little bit before we came on about, um, you know, in the 70s, uh, in America at least, there was a writer called Judy Bloom who wrote all kinds of really illuminating. Uh, so people here nodding that, you know, I learned, all, I learned a whole lot about why my sister got angry once a month, uh, for example. And, uh, you know, you don't really see that kind of thing anymore. I think there was this the period of sort of 70s openness and then things kind of close down a bit and now things are opening again I mean I get a lot of flack for violence in my books for example um, which again I can defend at, I could bore you to death with my arguments about the violence in my book but I mean I my only concern about that is the because there are more things it's perceived that there can be more things talked about like Melvin Burgess does and uh, even Anne Fine and people like that talk about difficult topics about sex and drugs and so on is the my only concern would be that um, the feeling that boxes need to be ticked in order for it to sell, in order for the kids to read it. It has to have this stuff in it. Because I don't, I don't think that at all. I think if you are paying true attention to your story, I think my stories, my books, have exactly the right amount of violence in them for the story. I mean, and I think if I had thought about, oh, well, I need to put this in so boys will read it, I think I'm going to write a bad book that boys won't want to read. And I think that if I do my job properly and tell the story properly, it's going to have just the right amount of violence and sex and language. And if it doesn't have any of those things, you won't notice because the story doesn't need them. So that's, I mean, that, that sounds, that sounds nauseatingly noble, but I mean, but that's sort of, uh, that's my, my take on it. But, I mean, uh, I was talking to Rebecca particularly just before about language, for example. Um, 
of my of the three books in my trilogy, there's one use, one of the F word, once out of uh, three hundred and forty thousand words, one F word, and in America in particular, oh, it's got the F word in it. Oh, no, it says the F word in it. But um, Rebecca was saying, A level reading these days. Yeah, well, I mean, the books I'm studying, abundance swear words. I do drama as well, and um, we've got worse than the F word in there. It's just, I don't think you should have any limits on what you write. I think if you're a writer who's going to write violently, then you write violently. If you're an author who's not, you're not. I mean, I think all three books have um, different types of violence, but say Patrick's are like a man with half his face hanging off or something, which is probably being gruesome for all of you. It's very, very good. Whereas um, Mark has a carnivorous plant or something like that. You know, it's... it it. The violence probably, to Patrick's, appeals to maybe older readers because it's more graphic. And I think in this age, I don't know many kids who are that squeamish about violence. So I don't, I think, don't shelter them. They're going to face it in real life. And actually reading about it in books is a better way to experience it than experiencing it in real life. Well, and Rebecca and Alex and I judged the competition that a number of you entered. Mm. And you certainly didn't shy away. Yes, <laughs> oh, Suicide. Yeah. It's really cheery. Yeah. Suicide or anorexia or abortion. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> good times. Um, no, I, 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 I also think there's a, 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 you've already touched on this, um, but there was such an enormous double standard about it um, in that you know I've had discussions not so much with my UK publisher but with um, when they were sort of printed in the states where it was like well you can't you can't have them say can't have them say damn. That was a damn. Can't have that. So there's, 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 there's a decapitation three pages later. <laughs> oh, that's fine. But they can't, they can't say damn. It's like, but, but you see on American TV, I mean, they're quite happy to have people being killed left, right and centre. But you can't have anybody actually use an adult swear word. Good God, no, that would be unthinkable. Um, and you know, equally with the attitude to sex environments in the yeah. States, it's an equally large double standard. You know, you can, have people killing to the left hand centre, but having people actually, you know, engaging in human in relationships. No, God, no, that's that's beyond the pale. It's more explicit in the playground than it is on the page. Mm, I find yeah. actually probably most conversations I overhear I'm involved in probably have more swear words than most of the stuff. You all think your children are little angels. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, when I was 14, I could talk the pain off the wall. But, yeah. yeah. And my, my parents are quite devoutly Christian, so it's. Uh, Nobody here does that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's where, you're absolutely right, in playgrounds where it all happens, it's where it gets spread and where, where it evolves. Um, there's an episode of one of my, my, one of my favourite TV shows, a really special program for me, SpongeBob SquarePants, um, <laughs> where SpongeBob discovers a, a bad word, but he doesn't, and he and Patrick don't realise it's a bad word, they call it a sentence enhancer. <laughs> uh, and, and they proceed to use it. Every, in every sentence completely inappropriately because they don't understand what it means but there is a similar thing I think that it's, I can remember a sport it's like oh yeah, but it's a new word let's just drop it into every sentence and enhance that sentence by using it did you think did you uh, look out, did you think about it when you wrote did you, when you wrote time writers did you did you have Not sure, limitations I, I didn't have too many words uh, naughty words ripped out um, I think yeah, apart from what were quite cool about the words I used but then I don't recall using the F word at all um in fact, no, I replaced it with that classic uh, replacement frack. <laughs> uh, I think a, a version of that, I think it was freak or frack or something. But it was okay. It, it was it sidestepped the issue. But, uh, but I have had from my American publishers uh, the same sorts of problems that words like damn are completely verboten. I mean, you just can't use that. Um, Mine had more of a problem with Ruddy because they thought it was too English. But it was okay in terms of... Well, I said, well, it's English 1950s, you know, I mean, so... But, uh, but yeah, but they, they were happy. They, in fact, they wanted to replace bloody with goddamn and that sort of thing. So you should come by American yeah. Filthy people. Uh, uh, you get the same thing I always love it when you get American TV shows or films with an English character who they use English swear words without any thought to how yeah, serious yeah, yeah. they are in this country. Yeah, you wouldn't say that. So you wouldn't casually just call someone that in, in, in polite conversation in this country. But because it's an odd word they've not heard, they think it's quaint. And it's, uh, yeah, it can be very inappropriate. I mean, I mean having said all that, um, and further answer to your question, I've, uh, this summer I've, I was asked to contribute to an anthology um, on teenage virginity called With 
great delicacy losing it. Uh, and, uh, and there are stories in it by myself and Melvin Burgess and Anne Fine. Um, and uh, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see what happens. At, uh, yeah. I didn't pull any punches in my story, but I did it in a funny way. And again, it's it's about I think it's about how it's presented. You know, in my opinion. So. Another question. Is it all good? Going back to the subject of ebooks, I think a big problem of ebooks. Uh, I think a big problem of ebooks is that um, with a conventional book. You, you can get it from a charity shop or a bookshop, uh, and you can get them at like varying prices. However, with, with an ebook, it, it's mostly at like the same price because it's downloaded from like the same companies. More like they're monopolising the industry of books. Well, uh, because nobody, of course, has ever illegally downloaded anything in this room. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a tough question. Anybody any thoughts on that? No, I mean, if I, if you want, if you wanted to, you just put a laptop in front of me, and I get you all of our books in two minutes, ebooks for free from certain places on the internet. Not saying you should, but to say that, it, but, but it, that's why it's, the whole argument about music and film piracy is irrelevant because you know, if you if the film studios release these movies at a reasonable price, at a reasonable time to download, people will pay for them. But because they can't, they're stealing them. Um, and the same with ebooks. If, if people can't get access to them, or they're or they're too expensive, in their opinion, from a publisher, then they'll just take they'll just take a version for free. And that's what happens. In, 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 in a way, it's a form of natural price control. You know, um, in the video games industry, you've seen it, especially when people um, on the PC, the games are released at a reasonable price, people will buy them. As soon as you go a little bit higher than that price, they're massively pirated. And there is a point at which people feel like they're being ripped off. And if you can get the price of your book below that, then, then people will pay for it. If people are fundamentally honest. They won't actually steal something because they necessarily want to. They do it because they feel that you know, people get fed up with record company executives saying that they're, they're hard up when they're still with private jets and limousines. You know, it's, hard, it's a hard sell for people. People find it hard to accept. Them. Yeah, I don't have a private jet yet, so... <laughs> I just wondered where you get your inspiration from. And for Rebecca, how do you choose which books you feature on Spinebreakers? Um, okay, well, Spinebreakers is run by Penguin Publishing, and so it's all Penguin books um, on the site at the moment. But of course, that includes all the Penguin Classics range. So, actually, it's especially useful when you get to A level because all the classics you're reading is tying in with what you should be reading for the site. Um, but we get we go once a month to um, Penguin HQ and um, uh, get sales pictures from all the new books out that um, month, and then just pick whatever seems appealing to you. I mean, we all have different book tastes, and we're all quite good at reading a wide um, range of stuff and so yeah it's whatever takes your fancy whatever you take off the pile first there's no sort of um, discrimination between g genres or um, styles or anything as long as it's published by yes <laughs> <laughs> which is Alex but not me and Mark really the question of where the ideas come from um, well for me uh, Mark and I are both ex computer games designers and I spent 10 years in the game design business. Uh, I actually started out as a graphic artist. I was one of the guys that did the blood. I was a blood expert. Um, <laughs> uh, but later on I became a games designer. And for the last of five years of my career, I was doing blue sky designs. So they put me in a dark room and said, come up with whatever ideas you, could, uh, you can come up with. And I would produce these big, heavy game design documents. Go, there you go, that's an idea. And then they go through and we can't do that, that's impossible to implement. And so all these ideas built up in a dusty cupboard where these various places I worked. Um, and in the back of my mind, and over the years they gestated and became Time Riders. So in actual fact, they, you know, Time Riders was a whole bunch of games that could have been made, but were just too practical to make. And be careful, because technically, if your contract was anything like mine, those oh. ideas technically belong to the company, because you had them <laughs> while you were employed by them. For me, I've, I've, it's probably, inspiration probably comes from Tetris. 
Um, and I don't mean just Tetris. All I tend to do is I have to do something where the higher brain switches off, effectively. Um, so it can be Tetris or it can be, I like building Lego, I like building Lego models. Um, so and it's drawn while doing something which in the film essentially is almost mindless. That's when the higher bit of your brain is fizzing and that's when I suddenly think, oh, that's how I resolve that bit of the plot or I should have this character in. Um, it tends to be when I'm not thinking about it. The most frustrating times are when I'm sat at my desk just thinking about the problem. The best advice I'm getting, the best ideas I've had have been when I'm not actually trying to have ideas. I think it's the worst thing you can do is sit and think, now I shall have an idea. It's just, it just doesn't work like that. The thing is walk away from the desk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been the same thing, except I, I, I'm a marathon runner, and so I run, I do lot of training runs, and so I get, I solve all of my worst plying problems while I'm running, I get all my best ideas while I'm running. Um, when I do an event, at, when I do events for schools, I do a thing where I um, sort of list facts about myself, like running, and like uh, I lived in Hawaii when I was a child, for example, uh, and uh, I talk about in the life of never letting go. It's not about running, but the character's wrong, and I know a lot about. It. I know about how it feels, and how it feels to be injured, and how it feels to run when you're tired. So my direct personal experience can be used. And living in Hawaii, I lived in a tiny little town in the middle of Oahu, so it's really, really in the middle of nowhere. And the book is not about that, but I, I can take that feeling and I can give it to my character. And so when, when I do the event at school, as I bring a, a student and we talk about facts from their life, and often, often it's things like, um, I mean, does anybody, any of the young people, do you have, you have a parent who speaks another language, for example? Yeah? Does anybody speak another language? Is anybody from a really big family? Anybody from a really small family? <laughs> yeah? It's, is anybody a twin? I mean, these are all these are all things that even though you are 13, 14, 15, these are all things that you know already, that you know intimately. These are real things that you know, and you can take them and you can put them in a story. So your lives are already filled with ideas you can use. So, so I mean, ideas are everywhere. That's my, that's my answer to that question. So, you have a question for a good while. Um, in my opinion, we're just going to go back to the um, e-pad idea. In my opinion, I think that e-pods, e-pads are a good way to attract um, teenagers because most teenagers are attracted um, to the technology idea. And I think at this stage, technology is denominating, um, dominating um, literature. So if they apply the same techniques and skills from the computer games to the e-pad reading system, I think it will work. Actually, it's quite funny. When you said that, I thought that you first said that e-book readers are quite a good way to attract um, read, the young readers. And I thought you said e-book, e-book readers are quite a good way to track teenagers. And I thought, actually, that is slightly <laughs> yeah, yeah. sinister, but yes, it actually is. Uh, very good. Yeah, your, your parents won't have to put a chip in your neck anymore. They can just track you by your Kindle. It's much, um, yeah, it's much harder to be, it's much harder to read contraband than an e-reader. Yeah, yes. It's much harder to read stuff you really shouldn't, and that's kind of what you're looking for. Or yeah, although, yeah, although, although, I don't know—is is the Kindle backlit? Is it backlit? No, 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 no it's no, not backlit. So you can't read it under the duvet at night anyway. <laughs> you really want an e-book reader that's backlit, so you don't have to have the torch with the book. That's the from the back. Um, what's it called? What you said about. Oh. So the, so the issue is the issue is sort of reading, reading as a whole rather than how you read. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. But that, but that, that's well, that's a problem that's been faced for decades. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> more comments. Most of the most of the manufacturers and publishers now make, are working actively to make it impossible for you to give any of your own to anyone else, um, which is a fundamental flaw, I think, in in the in the way that uh, 
ebooks work. Because I mean, I, if I, 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 I always said if I never lend a book, if I give you a book, it's yours, keep it. I, if I've read it, I pass it on to someone else when you finished it, if you liked it. You can't do that with ebooks. It's fundamentally, them, yeah, it can be done at the moment, but only if you subvert the control mechanisms built into the devices, which a lot of people can't do or don't have to know how to do. It's actually quite, like I said, the books being taken back, books you can't lend to each other. Just something about it's a little bit worrying. It makes it very easy to just hit the off switch and suddenly we're denied access to things that we used to always have access to. I have a, I have a group of friends going to Tanzania for about a month and they're all bringing a book along. And they'll, once they finish reading it, they'll pass it around and so it's sort of a book pool so they don't have to carry too much. And you can't do that with an e-book. I mean, it would, you'd run out of battery after two days and you wouldn't have anything to read for the next um, three weeks or whatever. And so, yeah, it's just the design doesn't work. Hi. I just actually wanted to return to the question that the lady asked earlier about kind of trends in teen fiction. So moving away from e-books a little bit, um, just about kind of the trends in teen fiction, stuff that you've kind of noticed that's been popular kind of very recently. Obviously there's been a kind of glass of vampires. And then the thing that you see that kind of might be becoming more popular in the more immediate future. I mean, I know it's kind of, I'm asking you to generalise, but I'd just be really interested in any observations. Um, I don't know if you've ever read a book called Black Swan. Books about how anything that is successful is inherently unpredictable. Yeah. So, for example, Harry Potter, nobody could have possibly predicted that was going to be the enormous hit it was. If they could have done, there would have been eight similar books out simultaneously. Massive success is unpredictable, and so consequently it makes it very difficult to predict what genre is going to be big next. People will try and tell you that this is going to be big next, or that's going to be big next, but I think, to be honest, almost invariably when something is hugely popular, people aren't expecting it. Um, I don't think anybody would have been able to predict the success of Twilight before it hit the stands. Because, I mean, to me, it's, a, it's an amalgam of about four or five other different stories that I've read or watched before. And I would never in a million years thought if you just mashed all those ideas together that it would be this massive phenomenon that it has. It's, it, it's almost impossible to predict what will be an enormous hit. And I think, I think writing to try to guess an enormous hit, to try to guess what's next, writing towards a mock. I would say, I would say uh, my theory is that if you set out to write an adjective novel, if you, you know, or a blank novel, a teen novel, a vampire novel, I think you set out to write that kind of novel, you're setting out to write a mediocre novel, because your allegiance is going to be the ad to the adjective rather than to the story. And I think the thing that Harry Potter and Twilight have in common, regardless of whatever you might think of their literary merits, is that J.K. Rowling sat down in a coffee shop and just really, really wanted to tell that story. You know, she just was, it was just flying out of her. Stephanie Meyer, again, whatever you might think of her or her writing style, whatever, I think that when she's writing, the teenage girl inside of her just dies with pleasure at what she's writing. And I'm, I, I always call that joy. And I think if you're writing with joy, even if it may not be a joyful story, I think it translates to the page and to the reader, even if you may not know what it's called. And so I don't, I don't think either of them were looking for a market or the next big thing. Not that that was your question, I'm not. One thing I would add to that but is, is that if you're, if you're sort of thinking with a commercial mind, oh, this is big, so maybe I shall also do that, you probably, you've already missed the boat yeah. by the time you're thinking that. that there are a dozen other writers who already are in submission with an idea, with the book already written. So it's, it's a losing idea. We, I mean, we would have had that all the time in our previous careers as well. The game's interesting, exactly the same. If the game's a hit, right, we'll produce, we're going to do our version of that game. Of course, it takes 18 months, two years to make the game. So by the time it comes out, it's already yesterday's news and nobody wants, everyone's fed up with that type of game. And exactly the same book me. You cannot move for fangs in the bookshop at the moment. Um, and I, you know, my personal opinion on it is that Buffy should come out of retirement. But, um, <laughs> But it's obviously very, very popular. And, but I would—that does not make me impel me in any way whatsoever to start writing a vampire novel tomorrow. It's just not. Having not said, having said that, um, Alex's book is a series, and Mark's book is a series, and my book is a trilogy. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I, mean, I don't know if Harry Potter did that to us. Um, but um, I mean, it, it, for, for me, it gave me the opportunity to tell a really big story. Over 1,600 pages, it turns out. And what a you know, what a great opportunity to do that. So I, mean, I think uh, uh, I think a lot of publishers are giving ideas for series rather than just for books. So yeah. let's take two more questions for people who haven't asked a question before, and then we'll get to the present use.
boy, I want to take us back to technology. Um, what about libraries? What happens with e-books and libraries? Can you go to the library and it expires after two weeks on your e-book reader? Or? No idea. No. Anybody? They don't exist then, do they? I think the answer to your question, what about the libraries, is yeah, well, what about the libraries? It's one of the reasons that they won't, ebook readers aren't going to be as quickly and as easily adopted as people would have us believe they are. I really don't think that. Because I can remember as, as a child that we had our tiny little local library, which I would go to every Saturday and browse the shelves, and couldn't quite believe that I could just take anything I wanted and, and read it. It was just great, it was fabulous. Um, and I don't think we'll ever be in a position where that is no longer possible. Um, or not so I don't know it's impossible to say I could look back on this conversation in 50 years time and think it was the most ridiculous thing we ever done. how did we ever think that books were going to survive you know, it's a naive of us to think that but I personally just don't believe we're going to abandon them with the ease and the, with the speed that we did CDs or vinyl or VHS tapes because it's a different it's a totally different um, question because there the media didn't matter. You didn't feel any physical love of a VHS cassette. In fact, probably quite the opposite. Um, but with a book, you can. You can actually have a, a, a genuine love of a certain book. I mean, I, I, the example I would give is about three weeks ago, my parents cleared out their loft, which is a, 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 was a vast undertaking anyway. And they had this pile of my old books. And they said, do you want any of these? And going through them was literally like going through an old photo album or something. It was just like, I remember, God, I remember this. I could books from when I was very young where all I could remember was the cover, but getting these massive rushes of sense memory just from holding these things. And it was just bizarre. And you wouldn't ever... That's why I think they are different to, to other mediums that have been replaced recently. Is there anybody who has absolutely no idea what he's talking about when he says VHS? <laughs> <laughs> so one, one final question. Um, I think that... For me, it's because I was pushed by my older brother to read the first book in the Hive series, but if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have started reading books, and it completely subverted the way I thought about um, mostly all books. But do you think if maybe older siblings or parents push you to read these books that teenagers will change the way they think about books? I, 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 think, it's, I think it's it's great. I, I love, it's fabulous for me to hear you say that, that, you know, that it's made you want to read more because you enjoyed it. That's exactly what I want to hear. Um, but you have to be really careful about it as well because if you're too, you must read this. You, know, you have no choice. This is compulsory. You must read this. It will make you better. That, as I've mentioned briefly before, I think that can turn people off. But wherever you've got a friend or, as your case, a, a brother who said to you, you read this because I, I presume because he liked it and he thought you liked it. That's great, that's word of mouth. And that's much more um, useful um, and effective. I mean, if you ask people in other um, media, whether it be movies or music or games, word of mouth is absolutely the most invaluable thing you can get, especially now with the internet where it can spread so far and so fast. If people are saying, to, recommending it to other people, that's where that kind of success comes from. I think that's where Twilight came from. Yes, Twilight was almost entirely word of man that, that created that phenomenon. And of course, there comes a point where it's self-sustaining and it snowballs. And, um, but word of man is incredibly important. And, um, that's why Spineback is so good. Because, I mean, it, it's, your, it's somebody your age telling you whether you'd like a book or not. And they're just going to have about a thousand times more authority than me telling you to read my book. 
And of course, the downside is from what we were saying earlier. I mean, if, if this was a book on an e-reader, your brother would have said, I'd like you to read this, but you're not having my Kindle and I can't <laughs> give it to you, so you'll have to buy it yourself. At which point, you might not. There's a bar queue doing it and it might stop you. And that's something we really need to address quite carefully before throwing the books out the window. I think you are likely to read what your friends recommend to you. I think what your parents recommend to you is it's not going to help. I mean, they're the people who tell you to eat your vegetables and turn the TV off, and it's not, it's not the cool thing to do. Siblings can help as well, but I recommend stuff to my younger sister, and though she's never actually disliked something I've recommended to her, she doesn't like the idea of me being right about something, and so um, uh, sometimes that can be dissuading. And I think that's where Twilight and Harry Potter and stuff like that came from, because it's... Um, this mass appeal there, the movies and stuff like that, and everybody knows of them, and so that made you read them. And I, I was told not to read Twilight by my parents, but actually I succumbed to peer pressure, and my friends persuaded me to read them um, to my shame. But um, mm. I, 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 yeah, I hate myself for for. But yeah, no, I also, but I also think that um, I forgot my point now. Um, yeah, no, but um, yeah, that. That friends, um, what your friends do is what's cool, and so that's what's going to get you into reading. I share books that I enjoy with my friends all the time, and I think that is um, that is where it's it's getting through to the young people, not getting through to the adults. What the adults tell you not to read, like Melvin Burgess and stuff like that, are popular because they're taboo, and so um, uh, so maybe it is good to get the content more racy and more violent because you know it's. The old fear of uh, the old thrill of doing what's forbidden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's going to, that's the end of our uh, panel session. Thank you very much. Very very good. Very patient for our panel. <laughs> What I'm going to do now is I'm going to announce the winners of the competition. I'll tell you a little bit about it, and we'll bring uh, the winners up. And uh, so if you could all take a good cheer when they win. And I'll do it up here. <laughs> okay, the competition. Shh, we're not done yet. Uh, the competition was, it's the second time it's been run by LSE, and it is for state schools in London, and uh, each school is allowed to submit three stories. A class will do it and a teacher will choose the top three to go on to final judging. This year's theme was Off the Edge, What's on the Other Side? We had, um, in the final round of judging, we had almost 50 entries of uh, really, really good quality. And the judges were uh, Alex, uh, Rebecca, and myself, and um, William Fines, the travel writer, and also uh, the teacher. He's shortlisted for Costa last month, and he's part of the prize. And so we've selected um, two winners from each year, and the prize is a really good one. The prize is uh, signed books, signed copies of all of our books, 50 pounds worth of book vouchers, um, a chance to be published on the Spinebreakers website, so you want to talk to Rebecca about that, and a, best of all, a masterclass with William Fines uh, to take your writing on. And this, this was, we had last year the masterclass was with Ali Smith, and it was a fantastic success. So this is a really, really good prize. So, um, I will I'll call out the winners one by one, and you should come up and get your own round of applause. But if you can all stay up here, we'll have a back of photos. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So, okay, I'll start with uh, year eight. So, like I said, we're two years from, two winners from each year. Where are my winners? There they are. Uh, so, in no particular order, uh, our first winner is, uh, I hope they're all here, I believe they are, is uh, Lydia Earthy. saying that her story was called Annie Never, and it was about uh, a girl who was given a magic mirror but uh, uses it for mischief uh, rather than for good. And it's a very, very good story, liked by Rebecca in particular. Um, that's our, one of our winners from year eight. And the second winner from year eight is uh, Lucy Todd.
really excellent story. Sorry. Yeah. Another really excellent story called Melissa's Box about a girl who puts, who listens to everyone else's problems, but uh, puts her own problems in a box with a not great outcome. And uh, a really quite beautiful story. Um, so, we're going to year nine. We have two winners from year nine. Uh, and the first winner for a really mad story, which I loved, uh, was Alice Hillier. Two winners from year 10. Uh, our first winner wrote the only funny story we got, and it was actually genuinely funny, and so it's a really, real pleasure for twin. That's a Gabriella Asim. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.